Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Sarah Benson. Fluent in brand, business, and tweets to tickle your funny bone, Sarah is one of our industry's brightest strategic thinkers. Currently selling dreams and dog biscuits as a senior planner at Adam and Eve DDB, Sarah has 12 years strategy experience making tele-ads and creating brands at Droga5, Anomaly, and Ogilvy. A huge advocate for creativity, Uncovering problems and fluffy cats, Sarah loves finding out what people really think, not what we think they think. Sarah says, I'm just a planner standing in front of marketing boys, asking you to stop calling every county outside of London the regions. Welcome to the show, Sarah. How can I follow up from that? Very nice to be here. Thanks, Giles. That's such a great line. Quick fire questions. We've got seven, Sarah. So Mac or PC? Mac. London or Leeds? <laughs> Leeds. Independent or network? Oh, gosh. Without wanting to set myself up with a P45 in waiting, I would say independent. <laughs> Good answer. Adam or Eve? Eve. Binet or Burnback? <laughs> I have to say Binet. He'll... Kill me otherwise. No, definitely. definitely. (laughs) Right, two more. Selling dreams or selling dog biscuits? Dreams. And lastly, hard pants or sweatpants? Hard pants because it's something to look forward to and I feel that we might need to expand on what we mean by that. (laughs) I can't remember who coined this phrase. It was some celebrity, but hard pants are jeans, a stiffer trouser, They are the opposite of sweatpants and no elasticated waist. So I was saying that I don't think I've worn a hard pant since March 2020, but I can't live in elasticated pants forever. Fair point. Well, thanks for clarifying that. I think my hard pants have actually shrunk in the last few months. Tiny pants instead. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us. To get started, Call to Action always likes to celebrate the linear and non-linear routes that guests take in their career. And I saw in one of your many brilliant tweets that you've worked the lottery register at Smith's, you've worked with Alzheimer's patients, taught Cambodian teens about safe sex and been fired from selling furniture at Ikea. (laughs) So uh, well done for that one. Uh, So which of those, if any, was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper strategy job? My first ever job was the Ikea one in which I got fired and it was a very very exciting day in West Yorkshire where I'm from because Ikea Ikea was opening and nobody had anything to look forward to until that day and I took the job because not because it paid a healthy £3.58 an hour (laughs) this is how easily led I am but because you got a free Easter egg at Easter (laughs) it's all you need to do in terms of staff incentive didn't matter about it was my first foray into work or learning a service culture. It was it was the Easter egg that, that got me. Oh my god, that's incredible. Did you did you were you there long enough to get the Easter egg? No, because I got fired. Um <laughs> <laughs> which is a terrible thing. So I worked on the till and I don't know if credit cards were invented in, in Yorkshire in the early two thousands. Um but somebody decided to pay for a wardrobe in cash, I remember, and he was paying in 10 pound notes and I took the money off him and dropped it and apparently that's a sackable offence in Ikea culture this, this money fell over the floor and uh, that was the end of my career in uh, sales at Ikea a sad day that was it dropping just dropping that just to your dismissal dropping wow. I think it was a metaphor for if you've dropped the cash you've you've dropped the ball look at me now that was my first actual job yes then I then I moved on to WH Smith 
which actually was an amazing experience. I was reflecting on that recently in that you just saw all manner of life in a very ordinary town. And the reason that it was interesting is one of the accounts I now work on is the National Lottery. So I've kind of come full circle. I used to sell the tickets when I was, you know, 16, 17. And now I'm working for the brand. Um, I just think those part-time jobs you have when you're kids or teenagers are just, they teach you things that you can't appreciate at the time. My first proper marketing job, is that what you asked? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marketing strategy, uh, you know, whichever flavour you started with. Yeah, so I started at an agency in Manchester called Love, which at the time was this crazy band of, of misfits, some of who had been ex-London ad agencies, some of who had come up through art school in Manchester and just didn't know what necessarily what they were doing, but had start, decided to set up this creative company. At the time, I remember receiving a choice. I can either go to a big ad agency on a placement scheme and learn the kind of playbook of advertising, but I decided to sort of follow my instinct and got thrown in at the deep end in this crazy, chaotic world. I was originally an account exec, and this is going to be familiar for many people in planning, and found that I was terrible at it. I just wasn't organized enough I didn't get a kick out of organization and finance and I was gonna say client schmoozing but you don't really do that when you're junior and everybody kept saying you are definitely not an account person which I think was a a nice way of saying you belong in this other field called planning so I I, I jumped ship it was a great agency. Did you ever work with Jono, a guy called Jono Brain? I did some work with him years ago. I think he was at Love. Yes, I did work with Jono Brain. And it's worth saying, Love 2008, I think it's a different place now. So I think they've, they're have they less diversified and they do a lot more packaging. Whereas when I started, I was you were doing everything from direct mail to activations to huge brand positioning campaigns most of our clients were in in London actually to a little bit of tv as well including at one point being in the tv ad and yes Jono was there we've we've got some stories (laughs) everything in, in in at love all the all the wheeling and dealing happened at the local curry house and that's where the founders loved to take their clients as to a kind of rice and five type restaurant. You know, there was no taking them to the Ivy Chelsea or whatever. Everything happened on the back streets of the Northern Quarter Manchester. So yes, good times. Good times. But the, I mean, the creative output from Love is extraordinary, really. I mean, as you said, it might, it's probably become a bit more defined. Maybe the lines are a bit sharper now than they were there. And I mean that nothing but Love, literally, because they, the output was fantastic. Yeah, I think there was... A belief that we don't really know what the output will be but we will take the brief anyway so we worked with a really great up-and-coming at the time company called Urban Splash who are an urban developer we worked with COI obviously the government communications which doesn't really exist anymore to work on um, the National Literacy Trust it worked on a rebrand of, of Christian Aid and created a sub-brand for them and a local brand called Silver Cross, who made, who make rather prams and pushchairs. So you were constantly oscillating between types of category, types of output, and just getting on with it. There was no formal training apart from yeah, just just being at the deep end with the craziest minds, the kind of people that were always coloring outside the lines. So yeah, it, it was a great it was a great first experience for sure. I typically always recommend people try and start in in some kind of relatively small, at least, indie agency, because you typically do get a bit more exposure to a bit more, like you say, across all sorts of categories and and types of media. But also you tend to have sites of other departments, whereas the bigger and larger network agencies, each department and each job hat has, you know, almost its own dedicated floor. So you don't get that passive exposure. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And the chap that you mentioned earlier, John O'Brien, he was brought in with another guy to set up Love's digital output, which in 2008, of course, was was still relatively unheard of and nobody quite knew what they were doing. And there was lots of flash development. And they brought in some great developers um, who were, at the time, 
what I now recognize is doing stuff with AR. So they were doing stuff with augmented reality back when nobody quite knew what to do with it. We didn't know how to sell it into clients. But what was good about it is there was this place, there was a corner in which there was experimentation. And that was absolutely encouraged, encouraged at that type of agency that it's not just about filling in job numbers and filling in invoices, but we build the fat in to allow us to play, essentially. Didn't you guys, I've just remembered this, didn't you guys have a live webcam as well on your website? Probably. I mean, I <laughs> I'm sure it, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was one of the first, I think lots of agencies tend to do that type of thing nowadays. But I think in 2009, it's when we launched Gasp. And I remember we worked with Jono around about that time. And, I, and I'm sure I remember it was Love's website. It had a live webcam of all of the office. And it was crazy. I remember thinking it was a bit... It was certainly new and innovative, but I also remember thinking it was a little bit risky. Yeah, there's, there's some things now where I think that probably wouldn't happen. What I liked about them was they were incredibly talented and egoless. So I'm going to completely misquote one of the founders who had said, it doesn't matter sort of how successful you become or how many awards you win. When you were looking out of the window, make sure you don't see yourself looking back. So they were never vain about it. And to that point about awards, they had tons of them, but they were just parked in an old shopping trolley that I think they'd pulled out of the canal. There was no pontificating. There was no shelf with can and DNAD. It was sort of chucked around the office, um, which, again, I think is, is kind of a healthy approach from, from leadership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lovely, uh, a lovely and, and kind of opposing balance to lots of other types of agencies, I suppose. So then how did you how did you make that move from account management with a heavy admin focus into strategy and planning? Did that just happen naturally as you evolved in your own career and your own roles that you took at other agencies? Or did you just overnight become a strategist? Definitely not overnight. Definitely not. And I think that's an important thing to get out there for anybody listening who thinks that they want to make that transition and they don't know how. You are very lucky if it happens overnight, if somebody takes you under your wing or if you get onto that graduate scheme that's going to teach you it modular. It almost never happens that way. And I think you need to be okay with that chaos because part of the job anyway. I So I had fought really hard to get that initial job at Love. I had been at New Blood, which is an amazing, if listeners don't know, it's part of DNAD. New Blood is where up-and-coming creatives and students go to showcase their work. At the time, I thought I wanted to be a copywriter because I was interested in people and ideas. And I had fought so hard to get that job at Love that moving into planning, you think, well, I've done the hard work. Shouldn't now come? And the truth is, it's just not like that. So I would say that my next career move, you know, the scene in uh, Wolf of Wall Street where Leonardo DiCaprio's character has taken quaaludes and he's trying to get from the hotel to his car (laughs) down the stairs. I think not because I was high on drugs, I would describe that as a much more realistic pattern of how my career has moved, not fast tracked, definitely not linear, at times difficult. So I may I just stuffed myself with as much knowledge about the discipline of planning and I suppose trying to make sure that I was interested in, interested in anything and everything all the time. There is a planner in Manchester called Andrew who writes a blog called um, Northern Planner. And I don't know if he knows this, but he really was my first inspiration he was thoughtful but intelligent and he wrote about people and culture in a way that made me think I think this is the direction so I just I was constantly building my knowledge and my interest and really just fighting fighting for any opportunity to get on a brief to learn more to network and then I eventually moved to London and left Manchester behind and then yeah I guess decided that I was a planner and that if you wanted to have me in your team, then kind of deal with it. I don't think necessarily anybody gives you a badge and says you are now a planner. I think you've just kind of got to go for it. Yeah, I think as an industry, we typically worry too much about semantics in general anyway, or at least argue about semantics. You live partly on Twitter as I do. There was a probably only a few weeks ago, there was a bit of a debate and spun off into a couple of little handbag incidents with people arguing about planning and strategy. And, and I just 
sometimes I look at it and think, do you actually think anybody else outside of the industry gives a shit? Like, doesn't, it doesn't matter. And the Wolf of Wall Street scene you talked about there when it comes to the way your career evolved and the way perhaps your skill set and your experience evolves, that tends to be the reality. And I think that's a really good thing. And I know from talking and working with students and doing mentorships and, and stuff like that, that people worry far too much when they are trying to get into an agency about doing things the right way. And there really isn't a right way. And even if you could write down what the right way was, it would be messy. It also reflects the reality of the job and the industry itself. There is no right way. We're not dealing in science and mathematics. There is no right way. There is a kind of feeling around. There is making mistakes. I don't think I don't think I could ever look at my career, even if I was pre-retirement, and say it, it was a it was a painting, it was a work of fine art. If anything, it, it's a sculpture because you are as much shaped by the things that were taken away the failures, the job that you didn't get, the redundancy, the feedback, the bad stuff does actually shape you into being better as well. Um, So yeah, I think there is no magic shoot in which you, maybe there is for some, (laughs) in which you graduate and then suddenly you're a top planner. And I think, yeah, you have to be okay with that level of discomfort and chaos because that's kind of what the job environment is going to be like. You've said you've made tele ads in big agencies with fancy meeting rooms and created brands from scratch in smaller indie agencies where the output isn't paid media. Firstly, would you say that that breadth of experience is really vital and and helps you in your current role? And secondly, given you have moved, um, I would assume, Adam and Eve, more into the paid media space, how has your role changed So yes, I've worked in both design and innovation and ad agencies. And there is this useless, pointless tussle between them, if you talk in industry circles, as you've pointed out, a little bit handbag sometimes. I think the fundamentals of being a strategist are still the same, no matter where you end up. And probably even if you're a political strategist as well, you need to be good at pattern spotting. And I think that's probably the number one skill you need to be able to notice things that other people haven't necessarily acted upon for commercial gain i think advertising i love it here and i actually found a little bit of a struggle to come back after working in design for many years because advertising went but you've been doing things that we can't see and do i think it's helped yeah i think it probably does because i, do, I don't think that they're very linear hermetically sealed channels we know how brands grow we know how brands are made and we have to kind of understand culture no matter what discipline you're doing I think probably the difference is um, in the day-to-day advertising is about attention and standing out and often in design it's about what you don't see So often good design is invisible because it's an experience specifically, I suppose, particularly in service design or product design. Sometimes the best KPI if if you've worked in design or innovation is it's, it's what you didn't see rather than having to stand out all the time. And they're obviously there. I think in advertising it is a little bit more rigorous. You have to know and you have to know and understand um, some of the fundamentals and particularly have a commercial bent. You need to understand what's keeping your clients awake, what keeps the CM, CMO awake and what's happening um, from a financial point of view. But above all that, you still need to be able to pattern spot and have a, a people first approach. Your point about design and service design, etc. I suppose you know the same with UX. Is you're absolutely right. Often it's it's making things easier. It's making choice easier. It's removing friction from processes. So absolutely, you don't you're not necessarily seen. In fact, the less you're seen, the better. Depending on the the context. You also mentioned about having that understanding of what keeps clients awake at night. You've no doubt got some additional empathy from your initial uh, foray in in account management to understand that other side of things as well but is that something that you think has helped you have that empathy I don't actually know it was if it was account management that did that maybe it was but you I think it's either way you you have to be 
at the coalface of of making stuff with the client. So we have to understand the context of why this why we're advertising for example and I think advertising will always be a function of business and no matter how much people like to cheer on its demise it works and the reason of course that the IPA exists is it it, it kind of proves to the city that it, it does work and we are keeping businesses moving and growing I don't necessarily think a, a, a toe step into account management did that but I think any strategist needs to be on top of what's happening a little bit in the business world as well. So you kind of do need to read a little bit of the FT or the Economist, or you should be reading your client's annual report. You should be looking at how categories are shaping and growing and changing, because I think it just gives you better context. Now, you don't need to be an expert in that. You're not a financial analyst, but you need to know that this is a kind of commercial art. We're not doing it just for fun. I've always thought it's a bit like the mathematics fields where you talk about pure and applied. I think the the advertising game and, 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 you know, slightly wider in the marketing world is more applied creativity. It's less pure creativity, which is your arts. Exactly. And I think reflecting on having had a foot in both camps is I'm not always sure that design and particularly branding agencies know how to measure a return on that on that investment perhaps because it's invisible, because it's intangible sometimes. But um, I suppose with advertising through econometrics and shout out obviously to Les Binet, we can tell what's effective and what, and there's something quite satisfying about that and about knowing that what you're doing is actually making a difference at scale. Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on research. We used a quote or a tweet in your intro that highlights you being a strategist who likes to get outside and, and talk to real people um, and not rely solely on research agencies and, and I suppose secondary data. We talked on this for some time actually in previous episodes with, I remember Phil Barden, he 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 talked he talked about his McVitie's factory tours that he used to go on and George Tannenbaum too is one of, you know, someone recent who's talked about the value of talking to, to real people. What do you think makes for good research because there is off there is obviously a problem in this industry where people talk about millennials like to have experiences and other such nonsense I think you one needs to think of research as a hugely important creative input and I think it's sometimes the enjoyment of that research is what makes people realize that am I a planner I think I might be a planner how do I become a planner because you should have this probably innate fascination with people at large, not just people that look like you and sound like you and follow your hobbies, but the strange foibles uh, of humanity. So I think that on a practical level, if you're going to research, do it early, do it late, never do it in the middle. It would just muddy everything. And you have to be careful that it it should be informing your judgment, but it shouldn't be replacing your judgment. You still need to interpret that debrief. You still need to take what you've heard and seen and draw down the insights. It is not a replacement for your own noggin. And it's important to build good relationships, I think, with people that are going to do that research if you are going to send it external but it can come from anywhere. Like research doesn't have to be a big commission with a big agency. You should be kind of researching all the time. And I think, was it Rob Campbell that said, you need to be in the jungle and not in the zoo. I think that's super important. Go out there into the wild, phone people, talk to people, sneak a question on Reddit if you don't have research budget travel outside of uh, London or New York City, depending on where you are. And I'd say keep a little black book of people that are experts, perhaps in that category as well. So research can take a lot of different forms. It's creative, as well as it is scientific. But you have to do the interpretation. I think that quote, actually, I I remember... um... I know Mark Ritson's shared that numerous times. If you if you want to understand how a lion hunts, don't go to the zoo, go to the jungle. I think that's oh, I'm gonna think I'm gonna get the name wrong, but I'm sure that dates way back. I'm sure it is. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if Rob's um Rob's also stolen it. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's very easy to sit in your ivory tower and talk about consumers. And I, I think one of my bugbears and partly the reason that I left design was this obsession with typologies and it would always be the same cookie cutter approach of young mums who are too busy reach for our snacking brand and it's just offensive offensive and lazy and you end up being you know I can't remember who said this but it's it's kind of karaoke branding you're just doing a bad version of somebody else's idea so I think as a strategist or as a creative you have to always keep one eyeball outside of yourself and going is what we're doing actually reflective of 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 real life and real people and and listen to that in in a cynic sometimes yeah completely um i'd like to touch on the um the socio-economic barriers of getting into our industry if i can we spoke to spoke to will humphrey about it recently but i know you've also been vocal about the opportunity cost and how much talent potential has been squandered by our ability or agency's inability even to see beyond the status quo. Is that something that you've firsthand experience of? Is that something you think is starting to be addressed? I mean, I think in terms of like giving an answer immediately for the latter point, I think the likes of Ad Academy that Ali's Owen has launched recently is, is obviously doing incredible things in that space, but no doubt there is room to do more. Uh, yes, exactly. And yes to both questions. I'm really encouraged by what has happened in what feels like the last five years, maybe that it feels like, and I'm happy to be wrong about this, a bit more of a hockey stick approach to how we see, seek and check our own biases of, of people coming into this industry. And I don't think that's just about socioeconomic background but it is intersectional completely. If we are meant to be representing the the ordinary people of Britain, for example, how can we not represent them in the makeup of our department? So one that you've just referenced is great. There's loads going on. Agencies themselves are making an active effort to seek out people that are different to perhaps the old status quo. But yeah, even when I started out in the mid 2000s it it felt like nothing had moved on for years so I'm I mean I talk about this a lot because I think it's important that when I started out I was repeatedly told when I was interviewing that if I didn't know anybody in the industry which I didn't like my mum's a nurse and my dad worked in the in an office of a factory that I wasn't going to make it I was told advertising was great if your daddy is the client at one point I was told that my accent was too strong and no client would ever be able to build a relationship with me because of my northern tones and it's preposterous obviously we need diversity and we need dissidents to to some extent as well but yeah I definitely faced barriers and I just accepted them I just went, yeah, fine. Yeah, you're right. Of course. Yeah, and I don't know anybody in advertising or, yeah, you're right. I haven't been to Oxbridge. That, yeah, you're totally right. I'll, 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 I'll give up. But I didn't give up. It, I was definitely grazed along the way, but it's actually absurd to think that at the time, advertising was so in love with its own image that it only hired in its own image. I'm hoping things have changed now. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think there's, 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 albeit maybe quite sketchy, but there's parallels with points you were making around research and the importance to get out of your own bubble and not talk to people who are just like you. The same, the same point is valid when it comes to recruitment and building effective teams. I, I had the pleasure of talking to an incredible, incredible woman called Dr. Stephanie Johnson, uh, who I saw talk initially, it was at Nudgestock years ago, and um, she works at the University of Colorado, but she has dedicated a decade plus of her life to researching the impact that having diverse teams has on businesses. And it shouldn't require evidence to encourage people to diversify, but the, but the, but the evidence is overwhelming mm. and it is incredible. The impact, the positive impact, not just on metrics such as morale and maybe softer metrics that aren't visible on the bottom line, but the economic metrics of a, of a business's success are dramatically improved by having diverse workforces. So it's looking back, I mean, obviously in hindsight, it's very easy to look back and criticise on how 
problems maybe manifest and only get worse but it's incredible to to feel like it's still a problem that needs to be fixed but at the same time it's important that everyone supports the you know the initiatives that do now exist to improve those yeah and I I don't think that's just an advertising or a branding issue or not issue so much as initiative it worries me slightly of the creative industries as a whole if you think about what art was like or even theater in the 90s and you had young british artists or in advertising you had trevor beatty these are people that were from those examples are given are very white of course but they were people from working class backgrounds people had a chance and there's a bunch of um obviously economic and political reasons about why that's changed but I think privilege buys you the luxury to fail so you can do that when you are coming from an arts point of view or you want to work in the creative businesses you can fail there is a safety net but we cannot be living and building a world in which arts and creativity is only for those who can because it doesn't matter if it doesn't work, they've got something to fall back on. What, like what kind of boring, dull, one-note monoculture will that be? And I, I do think that is something that everybody has to be mindful of, that are we just creating the sense that working in creativity is a luxury because it, 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 it totally shouldn't be that way at all. And also we shouldn't assume that everybody wants to work in advertising. There's, there's a bunch of different industries, right? Yeah, right. And I think increasingly people people don't, don't want to. Yeah. Can't blame them. Well, I'm going to go to our listener questions, actually, if I, if I may, because one of those is actually on topic. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But we do have two for you, starting with, with Will Humphrey. Who, who we both know, he asks, within your day-to-day, how do you tackle the extreme southeast bias within the industry? So same topic, but on a more kind of macro lens of your day-to-day. Thankfully, I work at an agency that doesn't think that way and is not looking through one lens at the way that the world works. I don't think they would be as successful if they, as they are if they did do that. So... I think you have to speak truth to power all the time. And even if that makes you slightly unpopular, your job as a planner or a strategist is to have that audience, consumer, whatever word we're going to pick apart on Twitter later, it's to have, <laughs> it's to represent them all the time. Yes, you need to understand the client and their commercial objective. That's absolutely key. But you have to live in their world. You have to represent them no matter what category you're in. And if somebody, I think, is is slightly falling down the, the very tempting trap of garbage jargon, let's say, you have to speak up and you have to pull it back to reality. I've been in research groups today, for example, and it is wonderfully mundane what people talk about, what their hopes and dreams are. And I think it's easy to forget that m- most people are just kind of wanting a holiday and a nice car and to keep their family safe they just kind of want to muddle along through life and that is happiness that is contentment so I guess part of the answer will is speak truth to power keep doing your research and, and pulling people back and call it out because I, I honestly think that to create a more equal workforce and therefore do better work some people are going to have to give up power and that's a that's a scary thought for some Great answer. Um, question two is from Ben, and I know Ben, he's at Bournemouth University, and he, he asks, what do you think the qualities are that make for a good strategist? I, so I think I've already touched on this, but I think you need to be able to spot patterns. And there's loads of different types of strategist, and you'll find your natural sway. You might love the data or you might love the call research or you might want to be a creatives planner and kind of sit in the creative department and that's fine. But I think fundamentally you need to be able to take a macro view of things and spot what others can't. I also think you need to remain objective. It's kind of related, but remain objective So 
having a little, little bit of cynicism, I think is really important for all the things that we've touched upon in this episode. Don't, however, become so cynical that it becomes toxic because you'll just never do anything. You'll never make any work. You'll never, people never want to work with you. So I think, think of it as a spirit level. Your cynicism is, is kind of your superpower, but it is also the thing that will, can end you as well. I think I'm not going to say curious because I feel like that's just a bit of a bog standard applicable to anybody. It's it's got to be more than that. You've got to be have an interesting point of view. You've got to be able to know how to frame things slightly differently as well. All of the rest of it, understanding a media plan, working out ROI, all of that can come. All of that can come in formal training or learn it from books. So I think you've just got to work on your kind of foundational qualities. Another thing that I think is really important, and I think Will Humphrey may agree with me on this, be interested in the past as much as you are obsessed with the future. Because to that point about pattern spotting, most things have already happened. I'm not saying you have to study history, but you have to be interested in how humanity hasn't really changed that much. One example, and I think I've talked about this before, but a few years ago, a creative team came with an idea and said, we're going to follow the subscription model. It's very hot right now. That's the way Silicon Valley's moving. And we thought about getting books on subscription. But here's the insight. We know that urban dwellers don't have a lot of space, probably don't have tons of bookshelves. So it's a subscription model for books but you get to send them back and you just kind of borrow them. And you're there thinking this is, yep, I think you might have invented a library. (laughs) And this is a thing where I think you you need to zoom out of yourself all the time because people haven't changed that much. Business models haven't changed that much. And so, yeah, fall in love with the past as much as you fall in love with the future. Yeah, excellent answer. There's, well, I think I think all of it's wonderful, but the remaining objective is crucial. I mean, and that's true of anyone who, who works in this game. I think there's far too much subjectivity. It's the bane of my life at the moment. I suppose it's the point about the unchanging man, isn't it? That that these things happen and go around in cycles. Um, funnily enough, you mentioned AR, your time at Love. I think augmented reality is something that tends to be quite cyclical as well. I mean, that's come and gone numerous times over the past decades, and we're still working out what to really do with it. Oh, true. And, that, and that's the exciting bit of the job is you'll often find yourself at the cusp of new things and not know what to do with them. And you have to be okay with experimentation. And part of that is failure. That is what creativity is messy. It is not going to run in a straight line. I think most natural planners do that anyway. They are quite chaotic, but you need to marry the, I think the IPA calls this diagonal thinking as well. And definitely check that out if anyone's interested, but you need to be able to understand enough of the fundamentals and the science. But like I said, you can get that to that eventually, but hone what makes you different, hone the pattern spotting, the love of history and the ability to, um, listen to that cynicism and remain objective. Excellent. Well, um, Sarah, the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, wear less eyeliner. Um, no, um, <laughs> I think this is a very northern thing to say, but I think I'd just say crack on. I was constantly worrying when I was younger that I wasn't good enough or that I was comparing myself to other people. And yeah, I've not had the same path uh, as some people, but I think I've picked things up along the way that has been interesting and has made me content. That there, there were many times when I thought, should I give up? Especially when I was trying to move back into advertising or I don't know when you've had a hard day, but perseverance is super important so yeah I think I would say to 25 year old Sarah shut up and carry on yeah crack on that's great (laughs) advice great advice well you're right I mean you mentioned just now about you need to be comfortable with with failing and and testing and I think that is that fear of failure that tends to be speaking for myself don't put words in your mouth but tends to be the younger the you you are the more the more it can scare you um, out of doing things but yeah crack on is is very wise words number 
two then, Sarah. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Corporate mysticism. And by that, I mean jargon. It really is a disease. It covers up meaning and it creates a kind of comfy, cozy blanket that prevents decision making and it prevents progress. One may think that falling into line is copying and it's marking and it's, it's a clever kind of behavioral tool to make things happen. But it's such a slippery slope. I think we constantly need to be asking ourselves, what do we really mean when we say this? And, and yeah, just I think too much corporate jargon is, is, needs to end. I can agree with you more. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no easier way to hide stupidity than behind jargon and ambiguity. <laughs> exactly that, yes. Number three, are there any books that you could recommend to our listeners? Oh, gosh, yes. And by the way, I would say, I'm going to slightly do the planner thing of challenge the brief here. You don't need to read books all the time. Not everybody does that. And you should be loving film and poetry and theatre and getting outside and, and, and I was going to say staring at people but people watching as much as books <laughs> ha- get into gaming if you're not already there are so many different worlds and you won't always find the answer in books that said there is there are a couple of things you're going to rephrase the question then are there any books poems <laughs> theatres games people we should stare at that you would recommend okay so I'm going to I'm going to give you some book um titles that are probably, they might be on lists already, but I think that people are probably sick of hearing the same old book list. They're very valid and the APG won't be very happy for me to say, don't read them because I, I don't mean that at all. But I think there's a slight broadening that needs to happen. There's a book called The Optimist's Telescope by an author called Bina Ventkaraman, who was an advisor to Obama's White House and she specializes in why humans are so bad at forward planning. And this was written pre-pandemic, but in the book she talks about how we're probably going to face a pandemic and how no government is prepared for that. But it's a really interesting study on what I think a lot of behavioral scientists have gotten onto is our brains are really bad for us sometimes where they're unreliable witnesses and we are just very uncomfortable with thinking in the long term. I think it's a really useful book for anybody interested in creativity and strategy full stop. Because strategy, of course, is so much about the end goal and the long term. Um, and there's just quite a couple of fascinating warning signs, I think, in that book. So that's the Optimist Telescope. Uh, there's another book that was recommended to me by... Uh, an old colleague, Simon Robertson, who's now living a high life in the US, uh, and that is Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino, which is a series of essays um, very much about internet culture, which I think anybody will just find interesting to read. So she talks about how our personal lives have become economic ones and that to exist online is to be constantly performing. It's yourself as as a resource um so super interesting and then there is a there is a planning advertising book that i will recommend and i think it might be out of print but do have a look and that is the old classic john Steele perfect pitch which is just interesting and funny and is much is a practical test text on how pitches get won how selling in gets made to a client and a little bit more about the day job. So yeah, check out uh, Perfect Pitch, Trick Mirror and The Optimist's Telescope. Amazing. And what about films and poems? Oh gosh, I'm, I'm never going to tell anybody what poems to read and what films to watch. Um, I think just absorb things that you wouldn't normally like. It will tell you something without you realizing that you're learning something from it. And years later, your brain will reward you with some sort of reference that will help you in a creative review or help you frame something differently. The film I keep telling people to watch recently, which I think is a couple of years old now, is The Florida Project. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen it? Oh, no. No, I'm writing it down. 
it has Willem Dafoe in it. So what, what more could you want? Um, <laughs> but it's, I guess it's about poverty in America, but as a bit of a Trojan horse, because the whole film is told from the perspective of children who are living in a motel on the outskirts of Disneyland. So it's a really interesting directorial and cinema, cinemographic treatment because you see everything from three and a half foot tall and you just see the joy and the happiness um, that these kids are living through it, from their perspective. Um, the subtext, of course, is different, but yeah, uh, super creative in every way. Yeah, that sounds really cool. We did have a guest on recently who can't even remember reading a book in his lifetime. So actually his recommendations were, were all entirely Netflix. But they're, they're great, great recommendations. Funny enough, Perfect Pitch hasn't come up before, which is, which is a surprise. Have you got any, uh, any good pitch anecdotes? Oh my gosh, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> you might have to edit this out. Um, the absolute worst pitch I ever worked on was for a certain retail mogul, shall we say, quite an oily man, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. Didn't do things very nicely with your pensions. And <laughs> the creative director and writer, Ollie Beale and Alex Holder will back me up on this, but it's honestly one of the most bizarre experiences of my life because about 10 minutes into the pitch, which was about what do we do about my fashion brand that is failing and has now failed, he just stopped listening and started saying, you don't know what you're talking about. All girls need to do is come down and shop with their mates on a Saturday night buy a couple of dresses and we thought oh my god he claimed that the e-commerce and the internet was was a fad and wasn't going to change anything and then about halfway through our allocated pitch slot he he got somebody to wheel in a trolley of cakes and forced everybody to eat cheesecake while he watched and uh I think then, uh, at the time, the chief strategy officer said, "Shall we let ourselves out? Or should we? Should we just go?" So, wow. Yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a story of power and corruption and a bit of blueberry cheesecake. Oh wow! You didn't that's, win the pitch. Um, that's, it's, that's it's horrific. The <laughs> yeah, that's horrific in every way. I feel like I need to balance that out. I um, I'll quickly tell one from my uh, my brother. My older brother ran a uh, an indie in uh, Sydney, and they they subsequently got acquired by publicists and he moved to Leo Burnett for about 20 years but prior to that they found themselves in this pitch where I've only ever it's only ever happened to me once but I think it was more routine back in the probably 80s this was where all of the agencies would all attend each other's pitches and all be in one big kind of seminar um, facility and they were last to go and given they were the only small independent against two larger network kind of entities, both of the first two pitches honed in on them and were very condescending and, and actually picked on them and, and had a, a five, 10 minute focus on why they shouldn't win because they were too small and, you know, who cares about them? And anyway, my brother isn't a creative and his creative director was notoriously unhinged. And he, <laughs> when, when it was their turn, he went up and he sang the entire song of anything you can do, we can do better, whilst gesticulating at all of the leads from the previous two <laughs> pitches before they could even start wow. their pitch. The pitch theatre thing is is the source of many a interesting story. And I think something that, as long as you've got your strategy right and your creative's brilliant, then yeah, I think you do need a bit of that. Um, but <laughs> the other thing to do is always look in the visitor's book um, yes, when you yeah, yeah, find, <laughs> find out who's yeah, pitched always. before you. Great advice. Well, we always dedicate every episode to someone, Sarah, and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Yes. I've talked a bit about the hybrid between design and innovation branding and advertising and the somewhat needless walls that exist between that sometimes and I've talked about just getting in and getting on so I'm going to dedicate this episode to a really bright up-and-coming um, superstar called Izzy Hayes is is owner of the world's best accent so I'll uh, leave that for you to enjoy but they're also a really fascinating hybrid part designer part strategist and currently 
living in France in the pandemic. So yes, hoping that you and Iz will have a great chat sometime. Oh, amazing. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Izzy Hayes. Cool. Amazing. So our final call to action then is for everyone to head over to this episode's listing. It will include links to everything that we've discussed, including the Optimist's Telescope, Trick Mirror, Perfect Pitch and everything else. How else can our listeners get more Sarah Benson? Oh, God. Um <laughs> go on a get a train ticket when you're legally able to and not going to catch a virus go to a town that you've never been to not a cool town not a town that sells lattes and the guardian and spend a full day in that town or village or city and then come back and write down what you saw what you felt what was different and part of that assignment is you must just do I think what northerners do really well is just talk to strangers obviously when that's safe to do so um so yes get yourself out there into the jungle and step outside of your comfort zone good advice go to Stoke Stoke yes home of Robbie Williams I mean what more could you want (laughs) I think he's moved out now but anyway he might be in LA but hey (laughs) on two regular routes Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed our chat. No, it's, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Giles. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this, please do share and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.